We're focusing in yet again on the Lord as covenant maker and covenant keeper. We're going to see that yet again, Abram doesn't get it right. Uh, We're not going to read chapter 16 where it looks like he leaves the covenant in ruins. If you know anything about the Genesis story in Genesis 16, Sarah comes to him with a what seems like a good idea. It's been over 11 years since God first encountered him and talked to him about the Abrahamic covenant and made the promises with him. Even though he is fresh off of what we just read last week where God uh, takes and makes, does the covenant ceremony and it is God alone who passes through because it is God alone who is the assurance of the covenant. Even after Abram saw all that, he still was troubled and doubtful since he had no heir. And so he listened to Sarai, and he took Hagar, Sarai's servant, and and he got her pregnant. And I think that Sarai was hoping that she wouldn't get pregnant so she would have someone to commiserate with because her response is anger. And if you remember, she kicks Hagar and Ishmael out of her house. Now think about this for a second. If what Abram and Sarai were doing was trying to help fulfill the Abrahamic covenant, what did they just do with the first heir? They kicked him out. They cast him into the wilderness where he would more than likely do what? Die. Now think about that for a second. Not only did they take matters into their own hands, but when it works, they undo even that in anger. And what does the Lord do if you know the end of Genesis 16 by heart, which most of you should. I'm just kidding. We're not that spiritual. But at the end of 16, God takes care of the one who's been cast out. He ensures that Hagar and Ishmael will not die in the wilderness. However, Ishmael becomes a consequence of the sin, doesn't he? He becomes a consequence of the sin that we still feel today as ISIS does what it does. In fact, some friends of ours were friends with the missionary who was killed in the hotel in the town recently that I can't even pr- pronounce the name, uh, that is in Africa. It was, he was a friend of theirs, and he was, he was one of the 20 or so that were killed uh, this past weekend. And so this consequence continues to bear its wicked fruit as the seed of the serpent continues, and it continued through the lineage by judgment through Ishmael. And so we have what looks like the covenant in ruins, don't we? I mean, how, how much worse could you mess this up if you were Abram and Sarah? And yet, the covenant maker and the covenant keeper will not let the covenant remain in ruins. First question that I have for us this morning is, how do you expect God to respond when you disobey him? What is your expectation? We've talked about this a whole bunch in here, and you've heard me say it often. Which way should you run when you sin as a Christian? There's only one way you should run, but most of us do the opposite of that, but what, what's the way that's been prepared for you to run? What did Christ open up so that if you as a Christian find yourself in disobedience, if you are in sin, if you have missed the mark, however you want to define that, what has Christ opened up for you so that you would not have to remain in sorrow? He opened up the way to the throne of grace. Remember that beautiful passage, which we should all have in our remembrance, because we need to go back to it often, is from Hebrews, where he says that he has made a way for you to come boldly before the throne of grace to receive what you need in a time of trouble, both mercy and grace. Mercy is for those who have run afoul. Grace is for those who need to go forward. 
And so we have a direction in which to run. So the answer to the question for us, even though we struggle, ought to always be that our expectation when we as Christians have disobeyed the Lord is that he would lovingly restore us. Now, is that to cheapen grace? Now, does that mean there will be no earthly consequence for what you have done? No, it does not. And there in the conundrum doth lie, doesn't it? That while there is grace and the Lord will ultimately be the covenant maker and the covenant keeper, there is a price at times to pay for the things that we have done, but not the ultimate price. And amen, that we don't pay the ultimate price if we are in union with Christ. So take heart, Christian, from this story. The worst way you could have treated the covenant, and let's watch and see what God does. If you would turn to the text, let's look at verses one through the first part of three. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty, or El Shaddai. Walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell on his face. Now notice what God just did. So in the midst of the wreckage of one of the worst ways that you could have treated the covenant, that you could have disobeyed the Lord, your God, what does God do? He incinerates him, right? Turns him into a salt heap. No. What does he do? He reconciles him. Don't miss this. He says, first and foremost, what he always declares and what we should always remember, that he, he is the Lord Yahweh, the covenant maker and the covenant keeper, and even more, he is El Shaddai. Now, nobody really knows what that means, by the way. There's a lot of postulation as to what Shaddai actually means. We know what El means. It's God of something. Some people think that it means God of mountains or God of blessing or God of sufficiency or almighty. All of those things are pretty helpful and kind of mean similar things. But what we do know is every time that El Shaddai is used, it is when a servant is in need of confirmation. What we didn't talk about a lot when we went through the book of Job was El Shaddai was used more than any other name for God. That makes sense, doesn't it? Because Job was in great need of confirmation of the covenant. Same thing for Abram. The wreckage is all around he disobeyed the Lord, and then when he, he kicked Hagar and Ishmael out, he left the covenant in ruins by virtue of what he understood. And the Lord shows up and says, no, I am the Lord God Almighty, El Shaddai. The covenant is not in ruins because it never depended on you. Remember what I did when I made the covenant with you, when I cut the animals in half, and the purification and the light into the darkness passed through, and you sat on the sidelines doing nothing. Remember, Abram, who I am. So he always starts there. And remember what he told him even before, I am your shield and I am your very great reward. Has that changed? No. And amen that it hasn't changed. Amen that for you and I, because of our union with Christ and our being sealed in the Spirit, your mistakes, my mistakes, which are myriad, by the way, do not change who the covenant maker and the covenant keeper is, nor does it change the promise to us. It does affect us. It does affect our ability to enjoy it, yes. 
But it's what's ultimate that is ultimately what is most important now, isn't it? And that should result in worship. And then he goes on to say, walk before me and be blameless. Now, this means a couple of things. One, it means that he's, in order to walk before God and be blameless, what must first happen? His sin has to be forgiven. You can't walk before God and be blameless if you have lied, you have cheated, you have broken the covenant. How else will you do that? And he's asking him to do it right now. Not some other time. He's saying, get up, Abram. Walk before me and be blameless. You are not who you think you are. He's also telling him to be obedient going forward and to express his covenant loyalty. This is not cheap grace at all because there are consequences, as I said, for Ishmael, this wild donkey of a man who is going to be the father of a people for which we are still at war. There are consequences. And yet the Lord restores him and calls him to walk before him and be blameless and to express his loyalty to him. And what does Abram do? What we all ought do when the Lord comes before us and expresses who he is and who we really are before him, we ought to fall on our faces and worship. We ought to be humbled by that instead of entitled. It ought to make us say, why would the creator of the universe, why would he pay attention to one such as I? This is why we sung Psalm 8 this morning. Remember the beauty of Psalm 8. What is man that you are mindful of him? That you would crown him with honor and glory, making him a little lower than the angels and granting him dominion. What is he that you would do that? And God says, he, you, all of you, sons and daughters, are my most prized possession, and I will not give you up. Not even when you seek to pry yourself from my hand. Not even when you have left the covenant in abject ruins. And of course, this won't be the first time God does this, by the way. Remember another great covenant name that we read this morning. It talked about the house of Jacob being restored. Who's Jacob? He was a great guy. You remember him, right? deceiving folks left and right. He was awful in many respects, but he came round. David, covenant king, man after God's own heart. How'd he leave his aspect of the covenant? In ruins, he split the kingdom in half with his sin that he taught his children and his inability to act when he should have and willingness to act when he shouldn't have. All of them, left to their own devices, leave the covenant in ruins. What does that tell us? Is that, should that leave us disheartened? No. No, what it tells us is that we need a Savior. It tells us that we need one who is made a little lower than the angels, who is crowned with honor and glory, and that God is mindful of, a firstborn, if you will. Hebrews takes and applies Psalm 8 and chapter 2 to Christ. And that's who we need. We need an incarnated God, God and man, to come and be perfect on our behalf and keep the covenant when we can't. And so all of this ruin and restoration tells us we need a Savior. This is not a, a riddle that must be solved. No, it is writ large for thousands of pages. 
And here we see a beautiful example of this, that the Lord takes one who has left things in ruins and raises him up yet again. Listen to what John Calvin says of this part of the passage. He says, in making the covenant, God stipulates for obedience on the part of his servant. It was necessary that Abram should be recalled from all other means of help, that he might entirely devote himself to God alone. Where indeed the power of God has been at once acknowledged, it ought so transport us with admiration, and our minds ought so be filled with reverence for him, that nothing should hinder us from worshiping him. See, God let Abram go through all this. You do understand he's sovereign, right? And that, that he wasn't surprised by Hagar or Ishmael. Which again, we've said this in the Job series, and it's important for us to remember the sovereignty of God is both the problem and the answer to the problem. So while God was not surprised, in part, it was part of Abram's sanctification and being drawn to him. Abram, exhaust all that you think you know so that at long last I will be all that you know. And that's many of our story too, isn't it? So what is your response when you discover that the Lord is all-sufficient and a blessing and is the Almighty God? Does that move you at all when you hear that, when you hear Almighty God? Are you moved at all when you recognize he is the covenant maker and the covenant keeper? Or you, do you just keep firing away at the foundation with more and more philosophical questions like I once did and sometimes still do? Keeping you from being able to worship because you want to be sufficient in and of yourself because you don't appreciate the creator-creature distinction. You've forgotten that there is a tree in the garden that you're not supposed to eat of. That tree helps you understand who you are and who God is. It's for our good, the law that is. How do we respond when the Lord restores? Do we quickly forget is it something that once we're restored, we got our sea legs back up underneath of us, we get right back after it? Or are we a people who are quick to worship because of the goodness of who God is? And what the world sees in us is redeemed sinners, beggars searching for the same bread they need, but who have found it in Christ and now turn and offer it to them. Turn back to the text, if you would. Let's read verses uh, the second half of three through eight. This is where God, again, so gracious. And notice, let us not forget, and, and what I hope you've picked up on again and again throughout this section of Genesis is how many times does God come to Abram? And how many times does, does Abram go to God? What you'll find is Abram doesn't go to God very often, if at all. And God continues to condescend to Abram. That means come close to, make himself known. How good is God that he would keep coming, keep explaining, keep repeating, keep progressively unfolding so that we could understand? How good is he in doing that for us? He's doing it for Abram. So here God is going to say, as for me, this is my part as covenant maker and covenant keeper. What you would miss in most of your Bibles is there's a little bit of a Hebrew phrase issue here where it would actually read, me behold me if we were to literally translate it. And what it says is, as for me, behold. So here God is saying, this is my part. Let's pick it up in the verse three, and it says, and God said to him, behold, 
My covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham. For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. Notice that God yet again is declaring the covenant. Notice that there is great grace and repetition and reaffirmation. For those of you who are parents, how important is repetition and reaffirmation? One of my favorite stories, not favorite at the time, about one of my children who I will not call out individually. Uh, I had just said to this child who was standing before me, we were getting ready to go somewhere and we were all snazzed up, right? And what do kids want to do when they have on their newest shoes and their nicest clothes? They want to find the, the filthiest muck they can find and somehow get in it, right? And so I just said to this child, hey, we're leaving literally in one minute. Do not go outside. Do you understand me? Yeah, yeah, understand. Do not go outside. I turned, I remember exactly where I was standing. I turned toward the bathroom and I hear the back door slam and the sound of feet going down the back stairs toward our acre of a backyard that was soggy from the rain. I'm a little confused at why this child is confused as to what I just said. And you know, I calmly went to the back door. No, I did not. I think the neighbors called defects just based on the door being ripped off its hinges alone. And I remember this child coming back, and I said, what did I say to you? And the child, she, oh, I gave her away, I'm sorry. <laughs> I think you kind of knew. I think if you know the two, you kind of knew. She said, I, I, I don't know. I said, I know you don't know because you didn't do what I said. So we as parents understand the necessity for reaffirmation, the necessity for repetition, but hey, adults, guess what? You need it too. How quick do we forget from Sunday to Sunday? How easily distracted are we from the covenant, from worship, from God's promise, from all that matters? How quickly do we let it go? And so here God is being so gracious to, I'm gonna say it to you, Abram, one more time. I'm gonna keep saying it because you need to hear it again. And basically I'm telling you, I love you. And in fact, I'm gonna take it a step further. I'm gonna change your name. Now, what does it mean for somebody to be able to change someone's name? That means they have a certain authority over them that is going to change who they are fundamentally. It's not just semantics. He is changing his name, uh, essentially, um, from the father is exalted to the father of many nations. He is making more and more concrete that which he has promised from Genesis 12 on really from Genesis 3 on, really from Genesis 1 on. And so it is now becoming more and more concrete. Abram is going to get, a, it has a name change. Sarai's got one coming too. We're just not going to read about that one. Not because she doesn't matter. We're just not going to get that far in the text. But Abram is now the father of many nations. Abraham. 
and he is to live in light of that. His name means something. It's a covenant name. It ought to be a sign and seal of the internal change within him. And God also says that it's not just going to be for you. It's going to be for all your children. And he even says, this is not just a temporal and physical covenant. It's not just that you're going to get some land that will be deeded to you for a few generations. This is going to be everlasting. This means that this is eternal and spiritual. It's one of the first times that he uses this term, everlasting covenant. So it signals that it's deeper than just the moment in a few generations. This will be forever. If it's going to be forever, I don't know about you, but most of us don't live that long then he's going to have to keep up with it. Because what happens from generation to generation? We forget, we deny, we move on, we rebel. Don't forget that aspect of it as well. Because sometimes we, what part of the church is, are we losing in droves? Yeah, Any, anybody from 19 to 35, until they start having kids and think those kids could use a little morality because they won't behave. I just gave you an example. And what better place to do that than make them go to Sunday school? They can learn how to behave. But you better have a dynamic Sunday school if you're going to get my kids. Sidebar. <laughs> All right, so... Here God is being so good. And don't, don't miss this, how good he's really being. And it means he's being good to us too because who is in the lineage of Abraham according to Paul? Everyone who believes by faith alone, through grace alone, in Christ alone. You are all sons and daughters of Abraham and this promise is to you. Notice when it was made and how he has fought to keep it in history. Because again, Man and woman leaves the covenant in ruins time and time and time and time again, which is why we've got to be reminded, which is why Paul can call it the gospel. It is the promise that will hold, which means there will be sons and daughters. And praise God. Listen to what W.H. Griffith Thomas says in his book, Genesis, a Devotional Commentary. He says, these words are evidently intended by their emphatic reference to God himself, as for me, as a reminder to Abraham that whatever he had forgotten, God had not been unmindful of his solemn promises. It is noteworthy that God reminds Abraham of an already existing covenant. My covenant is with thee. And then proceeds to tell him some of the forthcoming results of this existing fact. Not even the silence of 13 years, still less the birth of Ishmael, can alter God's purposes or change his mind concerning Abraham. Same is true of you. Not even years of silence on your part, not showing up, showing up half-hearted. Not even your covenant breaking and ruining as best you can will cause the Lord your God to forget the promise that he makes. And that is good news to us because every single one of us will find ourselves, just like what we sang about, a burned out forest, a, a, a river that has gone dry, a child that is hungry. We will find ourselves in all of those spots at various times. Some of you are there right now. My encouragement is to, to you is that while we may have forgotten each other. 
You may have forgotten you. You may have forgotten God. God has not forgotten you. And I know that to be true as the Lord held fast in my own story, how his hand was long at work before I knew anything about it. I'll never forget uh, working for 10 years for a man who was paralyzed from the neck down. I've shared this story before. Some of you are new, so it'll be new to you. But I worked with him every doggone Friday and Saturday night of most of my most virulent years. I have seen more episodes of the Golden Girls than I think actually exist. I've seen the entirety of the catalog that is offered by In the Heat of the Night. Those were his two favorite shows. If you want to see me go into convulsions, turn one of them on. And I thought, Lord, this, you know, this, this, <laughs> this is one of the reasons I'm an atheist, this kind of stuff right here. But the Lord, in great beauty, gave me an opportunity to return. I was graduating from physical therapy school. There was going to be a lag time between me getting my license and actually being able to make a living. And John needed some help and needed somebody to come work for him for a little while. And I'll never forget the first night I went back was New Year's Eve. And here I was with some paralyzed guy on New Year's Eve, not with my wife, uh, not hanging out with a whole bunch of people. And I was lamenting that a little bit about 3 a.m. There was this great big leather chair that I always sat in. And they had the same clock. And I remember looking at that clock thinking, I don't think I've moved or advanced hardly at all in 12 years. And I was lamenting that fact, and I felt the Lord speak and say, oh, no, I have moved you. And notice that it was my guiding and protecting hand that held you fast during all those Friday and Saturday nights when you would have been laying waste to your own life. You need to give thanks for the golden girls in the, in the heat of the night. <laughs> they didn't save you, but I did. And it was a powerful moment to remind me that the Lord is at work in us and in and, and, and covenant relationship with us even when we have no earthly idea that that is what is happening. There were times, i got to be honest with you, I prayed that John would die so I'd be released from my burden. Isn't that horrible? John was probably the person I was closest to in this world, loved him. Spoke at his funeral, hardest thing I've ever done. And yet, that's what I wanted to be free. And what I didn't know was I was being set free because the Lord was at work. And this, this is true of Abram, and it's going to be true of the actual covenant marker that he gives him. But before we move on, I have to ask, how did Abram's sin with Hagar so far affect God's covenant promises? Did he lay the ax to the root of this tree? No. And how does your sin affect the covenant promises, as it turns out? Or sins committed against you? Does it rob of any of the truth of the covenant maker and the covenant keeper? Is he diminished in any way, shape, or form by the tomfoolery of men and women? No. No. And that's good for us to remember. We need that remembrance, don't we? Let's turn back to the text and close out. This is the part where Abram's now going to be told what his response is to be, and it's the as for you statement. And God said to Abram, as for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house 
or brought with your or bought with your money from any foreigner who is not of your offspring, both he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh, an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. Now, <clears throat> I have to be careful how to handle some of this, given the age of some of the children in here. Uh, Noah took off running because I threatened to do a live demonstration. And um, so he's already, he's fled the scene just in case. But here's the deal. There's, this is really important. This is not just nonsense, by the way. For those of you who are like, this is the dumbest thing. No, actually, it's not. Think about it. If this part of the story is part of this whole discussion on the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent, shouldn't there be a covenant marker that reminds us at the fount from which it comes? Shouldn't there also be a cutting away Something that is taken away because ultimately it is impure and it ought be purified by the Lord God himself. So circumcision makes perfect sense in light of what the covenant actually means. And it was meant not only for Jews. Notice the Gentiles were included. If you were part of this family for any reason, and I know you're, you, just like me, I bristle at the idea of being bought it's part of their culture. doesn't make it right, by the way. But at least they were, God was saying, that aside, they are my people. And how do you treat those who are God's people? Like slaves or family? Treat them like family. It's different. It ought to be different. In fact, this comes up whenever he talks about the Sabbath. And whenever he talks about Isaiah 58, he says, those who are of the circumcision, those who are part of you ought to be treated like family. You ought not to be striking them with a wicked fist. So here God is being, is, is again evidencing the national, the nation's aspect of things, even in this covenant marker. This is a sign and seal, an outward aspect of an inward reality that must happen. Are you saved if you're circumcised? No, scripture makes it very clear. If you, if you don't respond in obedience to the covenant, you don't receive the covenant promises. You are, you are not Saved because something outward happened to you. Something must change inwardly. If you remember, Paul in Colossians 2 talks about how circumcision and baptism are akin to one another. So in this circumcision, what does the child do to earn it? Nothing. What does the lineage that comes from that child that ought be circumcision do to earn it? Nothing. It is a responsibility to be a reminder for them to be taught who this God is. This is to remind them, teach them who is the covenant maker and who is the covenant keeper. This is evidence of the Lord at work in his lineage long before that lineage has even come into being. He knows every aspect of them before they are even formed. This is why we, we baptize infants. If they are synonymous with one another, Old Testament, Old Covenant aspect, shadow, and baptism, then, then this is part of it. This is to say, we welcome you into the covenant family, and we want you to know who is the covenant maker and the covenant keeper. He has been at work in your life before you were even born. To have you born to parents who love me, who will tell you of me, is my grace to you now as you grow old enough to know, you must respond in covenant obedience or the curse will fall upon you.
And so this is why we view it this way, this covenantal understanding of baptism. Either way, for those of you who have been baptized this morning, what you ought to be reminded of is how to improve upon your baptism. Because what does baptism represent? It represents the cutting away or the losing of the impure in death and the raising to newness of life as son and daughter, seed of the woman of the Most High God. Same thing that is meant in circumcision, essentially. In shadow, baptism in full, because it's in Christ. And so, for those of you who are baptized, I ask you, how are you living in light of this reality? How are you, how are you appreciating the almighty El Shaddai who called you into and out of those waters? Who provided what was necessary for that not merely to be a religious rite, but to be a reality in union with Christ? That you not merely were washed with water. No, not just the removal of dirt, no. The purification of your very soul. So that you could walk resurrected. The resurrected life, newness of life. Amen? Because that newness of life comes from remembering that God is the covenant maker and the covenant keeper. And though most things lie in ruins, that never does. And amen. Listen to what Michael Williams says of this part of the passage. He says, true inclusion in the covenant came not to those who merely went through the formality of the circumcision right, but to those who bore it as a symbol of living faith in the God who set Israel apart for his service. The outward rite of the covenant symbolized the gracious promise of God to the seed and the inner purification necessary for the life of covenant mission. To be circumcised is to be set apart as a missionary. An ambassador of reconciliation. To be baptized is to be set apart as one who would walk in obedience to the Lord and one day serve his covenant purpose and mission. We should live into that reality. So what do we learn from all of this? Genesis 17, 1 through 14 teaches us three things, at least. God responds to our failures with a gracious call to return in obedience and worship. That's just good. And I'm thankful for that because I can't tell you how many times my own darkened heart, my own dumb and dumber image comes to the fore and leaves me feeling lost. And yet again, God condescends. The Spirit draws nigh through some word, through some encouragement, through some of you, through something he wrote, through his own word, and says, forget not. I am the covenant maker. I am the covenant keeper. You are not lost. Secondly, God is patient to repeat and reaffirm his commitment to his covenant and his promises, and those things are eternal, everlasting. Third, we are called to respond in outward obedience to the inward spiritual reality. This is not just for show, people. This is not, this is not just, we're not, we're, we're not just doing voodoo here. This is real. The real presence, the real Lord, the real spirit, the real Christ, the real people of God. Let's close with a quote from Bruce Waltke, Old Testament scholar, in a book he wrote with Kathy J. Fredericks. He says, the God who alone can satisfy the benevolent provisions of this covenant is faithful and will keep his grant to Abraham. 
but only those who trust in this covenant keeper will enjoy its provisions. Like Abraham, all participants in the covenant must believe, and I would add by faith alone, God's promise regarding a supernatural seed, one raised from the dead, as it were. Nevertheless, Abraham's faith sometimes wavered with skepticism. God's grace is greater than our doubt. Remember from our Habakkuk series, what is the antithesis to faith? It's doubt, right? No. What is it? It's pride. It's to say, I don't need a covenant keeper or a covenant maker. I can do this all my own. I don't need a historic creator. I don't need a sovereign God who acts in history. I've got it from here. Thank you very, very much. That is the antithesis to faith. Not going, Lord, I don't yet have an heir, and I don't know how this promise is going to come true, and it's been 24 years since you said that. What are we going to do? What does God say? I'm going to change your name, and you're going to have Isaac, and you can laugh all you want, but it's true. 